professional intellectuals in all their various professions carry to the rest of the culture, to the rest of society, the philosophical premises, the ideas which have been defined by the philosopher. Therefore, they are the transmission belts. They are the ones who determine the goals, the values, and the direction of the culture. The process of cultural change and the vehicles for cultural change, it is the essence of what it is that we're doing. The Objectivist Summer Conference, OCON, is just around the corner. OCON is the largest gathering of fans of Ayn Rand, drawing people from all over the globe. We're expecting folks from six continents and more than 20 countries in Miami, Florida, starting June 30th. Today, we're counting down to OCON with a preview of some of the lecturing offered. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Elon Jurno. And with me today are four of our newer speakers at OCON. Let me introduce them briefly. Dan Schwartz, Nikos Soterikopoulos, Agustina Vergara-Sid, and Sam Weaver. Welcome, everybody. All four of them are part of ARI's Fellows Program, which is core to our educational mission. It's a next step following Ayn Rand University, our key training program. The Fellows Program, which has grown dramatically in the last five years, is designed to accelerate the development of new objectivist intellectuals. And the goal is to help them become better thinkers and more effective communicators and writers, applying objectivist ideas to different areas of the culture and being instructors in objectivism too. Well, that's a lot of background on what we're talking about today. Let me bring in our first guest, Sam, and I want to talk to Sam about his presentation at Oakland. Welcome, Sam. Hi. So you're going to talk about a topic that seems like it should have been settled long ago. So you're talking about the reading wars, and I want to hear a bit from you. What are the reading wars? And for many people, this was an issue that came up in the 1950s with a book called Why Johnny Can't Read. And how is it there's still a reading war? What is it about exactly, Sam? Sure. So the reading war uh, in its most basic description is the controversy over how children are taught to read, how they should be taught to read. And uh, there's been debate about this even going back decades before that book in the 1950s about whether children should be taught to read by learning the correspondence between letters and sounds and how to you know, translate the letters on the page to the sounds of spoken language and read words that way, or whether they should learn by some other method and the specifics of these other methods have, have varied, but it's usually some form of, no, they should try to take in whole kind of chunks of text at once. They don't need to learn the sound and letter correspondences. And this has been, a debate that went on for a long time, basically as long as there's been uh, a, an education system in the United States. The 1950s was one kind of watershed moment where this book came out by Rudolf Flesch. It really was popular, took off, and uh, criticized the uh, the kind of whole whole word or that's what it was called at the time method, uh, and and argued for phonics for learning sounds and letters and and that form of teaching reading. But uh, even though that book got a lot of support and a lot of people campaigned behind it to change how reading was taught in American schools, it, it never really fully changed. And there have been kind of movements back in the other direction in the decades since then. And it sort of swung back and forth like a pendulum in the, in the decades since that time. 
And even today, there's still a lot of schools in the United States that do not teach children primarily by letter and sound correspondences or do some of that and mix it with these other methods that end up uh, teaching children to go about reading in, a, in completely the wrong way and end up encouraging them to do things that even amount to just guessing words as opposed to actually reading what the letters say and how they build up into the words on the page. Let me be the advocate for the devil here and say, well, English is a complicated language. I had to learn English as a second language when I was a kid and it's complicated. So aren't there just obvious cases where the words themselves are not phonetic? I can think of all kinds of words with odd spellings and you, you just stumble over them as a new reader. And isn't it necessary that there be some guessing involved? Well, English is more complicated than a lot of uh, other phonetic languages. I mean, like if you look at something like Spanish, there's a very limited set of correspondences between letters and sounds, and you can pick that up more easily than you can English. But uh, the structure of written English is still based on sound and letter correspondences. And while there's a larger set of rules that you have to learn in English, and there are some complicated uh, things that go into some of the, the words that you have to read, uh, it's still based on the letter as this unit that is built up into words because of its correspondences to different sorts of sounds. If you get rid of that and you say, we're not going to focus on that, or if you de-emphasize it to a point where children aren't really learning the rules in a comprehensive way, what you end up with, yes, is, is guessing or memorizing uh, entire words. And even when you think, okay, there, English is a language where there are some exceptions to, to phonetic rules, that's still way more difficult to do because if you're memorizing one word at a time, there's hundreds of thousands of words in English. So that's going to be way less efficient. And uh, it's, it's an unnecessary tax on the, uh, the child's mind to try to memorize all of those words, which, and in fact, most of them aren't doing that. They're, they're trying to just guess from based on a few letters or from the context. And that's really a problem. So it's one thing if you could actually memorize in a few years all of those words, but you really can't. And what, what ends up happening with guessing is, well, then you're not really reading. Then you're not really looking at the words on the page and recognizing the specific uh, exact thing that is written there. You're engaged in this kind of hazy process of trying to get the approximate meaning. I kind of sort of know what's written here. And that's a real problem when you think about language as being a tool of thought and communication where precision really matters. Well, that's why I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about this. So I, I just read this morning in the newspaper about a national uh, exam that the United States government does to, to figure out baseline skills of, of students. This was for 13 year olds. And I've heard, and we've talked in another context about the results for fourth graders. And it, it sounds like there is a crisis of reading right now. And it's, it's been going on for a long time. Give us a sense of what the stakes are. How many students are just at the level where they're not capable of doing basic reading? What, what's, the, what's the situation there? Yeah, so the, the stats are, are pretty staggering. I don't have the specific numbers in front of me right now, but it's the, the number of students who can really read proficiently on what their grade level should be according to the federal standards, it's a minority. And there's, some, there's something like 
30% or even more who can't even read at a basic level, which is kind of a lower, lower standard. Um, so it's really, a, it's a, it's a crisis where this is one of the most basic skills. I mean, that's what context we should keep here is that the, it's one thing if children aren't learning like calculus. Okay, you can make an argument that that's a pretty advanced skill comes towards the end of education, but reading is like, a, it's a foundational skill. It's a skill that is the foundation of most of the other subjects in school. It's something that the schools are, should be doing very early. And it's something that they're still getting really badly wrong where it's it, it, large percentages of American children really can't, uh, can't read or can't read very well. So the generations of, ch of children who are, whose minds are being stunted because they can't read, they can't, they don't have this gateway into new knowledge. Tell us a bit about what you think is going to be surprising for people in your talk. So you're going to present a particular angle on this debate. What, what I mean, what's really new to say here? What, what do you think is really interesting that has detracted you to the topic? Yes. So one thing people might not know, especially if they're more familiar with the, the version of this debate that went on some decades ago with the Rudolf Flesch's book and some of the, the discussion that went on around that in the, the 50s and 60s, is that, well, for one thing, uh, phonics didn't win. Uh, it's still, there's still this controversy, as I mentioned. Um, another thing that's interesting is that uh, the, the kind of anti-phonics, uh, the Anti, uh, anti exact reading, knowing letters and word correspondences. I think of it as a really anti conceptual approach to reading. It's, it's changed its form in the last few decades. And in some ways, um, the, the theoreticians behind the ideas that are in practice in a lot of American schools today are even more brazen about what they're doing than the people uh, of Rudolf Flesch's time. I mean, you have people using still in American schools today, a, a method called three queuing, uh, which is a, a method of trying to use pictures and context to guess what an unknown word is. This is something that children are being taught pretty explicitly. And the theoretician who this, whose ideas this method is based on says very explicitly, I think this is what everyone does when reading. I think reading is just a guessing game. And nobody ever knows what words exactly mean. It's just guesswork and trying to piece together some clues. And so this is really brazenly anti-conceptual approach. And it's something that is, his ideas have gone into practice in a lot of American schools where children are being taught, look at the picture. Don't try to sound out the letters, look at the picture and try to figure out what word will fit. So Sam, one, maybe one and a half more questions before I turn to some of the other newer speakers. So this is your first time speaking at Ocon. I'm excited to hear your talk. I heard snippets of it when you were doing some practice runs. I wanted to ask you, um, one, say a bit more what you mean by anti-conceptual and how that relates to your understanding of Rand's approach to, to sort of knowledge and, and the, thing, the theory of knowledge. And then just to sort of give us a, a flavor of how you got interested in this, what, what drew you into this topic as a research project? Sure. So yeah, when I say anti-conceptual, I am thinking about what Ayn Rand you know, wrote about, about how human beings learn and, and gain knowledge and what she said specifically in some of her uh, writing about reading and about 
this, you know, the leading wars as they were back in the 1960s and 70s when she was writing. And the reason why I, I say that this other kind of collection of methods is anti-conceptual is because uh, phonics or the understanding of letter sound correspondences is the conceptual method of learning to read English. And it's conceptual because what you do is you learn a few symbols and their correspondence to a few sounds, even in English with all the exceptions, all the kind of situational rules, it still only amounts to a few dozen letter to sound correspondences. And then once you've learned those, you have those as, as knowledge that you can use to read anything, no matter where these letters show up, you can put them together and, and you know how to, how to do it. So it's learning a few kind of basic foundational building blocks that you can then use to reach uh, greater and greater knowledge. Uh, this is the method of learning all the words individually. Uh, so learning each new word as though it's a brand new phenomenon, uh, totally unrelated to any other word that you've encountered before, as opposed to learning, no, actually all these words are related because they're built up of these same building blocks. Um, or even worse saying, well, we're gonna just sort of piece together some clues. We're just gonna try to take in all of this piece of text at once and try to figure out what it means, not, not actually look at the words at all. I mean, that's trying to take in each new text as though it's a a brand new phenomenon that's just appeared before your eyes. It's and it's totally uh, antithetical to the way that human beings actually learn things and how how we can make use of our knowledge. Whereas if you learn these conceptual building blocks and then piece them together in each situation where they come up, enabling you to read anything, regardless of if you've seen it before, regardless of if it's a, even a new word or a new text, uh, it, it's a totally different. And when we know about phonics as a method, uh, it becomes clearer and clearer that this is, uh, this, these other methods are, there's some sort of opposition to a conceptual method that's, that's involved there. Um, and let me just follow up with, so I know you have a great passion for literature and for teaching. So how, how, was that your entry point into the debate around the so-called debate around how to teach reading? What, what drew you into this? Yeah, that, that was a lot of my entry point because, yeah, I'm really interested in literature. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in kind of these, uh, I'm interested in education as a field. And I'm interested in people learning to appreciate the great literature of the world, learning about, you know, interesting, inspiring people from the past, learning about the world that they live in. And, you know, interested in how that, how that can be done better in schools. And the problem is that if you can't read or can't read very well, or have a lot of anxiety around reading, which a lot of children do as a result of the methods that they're, they're taught, uh, that's all out. You can't really access this wealth of great art, great knowledge, inspiring stories and people. Uh, it, you, you just can't do it. So it's this foundation of all these things that matter to me so much that it is being uh, still, still uh, people are failing really badly at it. Uh, and that's alarming to me. And then also, I'm just I'm interested in language and the kind of the, the structure of the English language, and um, so when you actually look at like how words are built out of symbols and how letters and sounds work together, that's just a subject that fascinates me. And what I think when you learn more about that, it becomes a lot clearer the benefits and why uh, learning by phonics is the is the right way to understand English because it's 
relates to the way that English actually works as a language. Um, and so whenever I get into, you know, looking at the, these debates over reading, it involves getting into some of this stuff about how language works that I, I also find interesting. Really looking forward to your talk. What's the title of your talk? It's called The Reading Wars Today. Great. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the ideas behind this. It sounds like a, a, a catastrophe that's happening in the schools, and I, I'm looking forward to your enlightening us about sort of what's going on behind that. Thanks, Sam. Stick around. We might get some questions, and I just want to acknowledge, thank you for the Super Chat donation. We appreciate your, your support for today's podcast. Uh, stick around, Sam. Maybe we'll take some questions later on. Uh, let's bring on Dan. Welcome, Dan Schwartz. Hi, Ivan. Hey, Dan. Good to have you. I want to talk to you about your talk, which is what tell us the title of your talk again. Uh, my title is the Galileo affair. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that term, that is the name for this period in Galileo's life. It's roughly 1610 to 16. So the end of his life in the 1630s, uh, in which he is dealing with people attempting to denounce him, censor him, shut him down, ultimately going to a trial in the Inquisition where he is condemned as a heretic and sentenced to house arrest. So I remember seeing an Italian banknote not that long ago. <laughs> I don't know if it's still in circulation, but on the one side of it is a portrait of Galileo. So as a national hero in Italy, a hero, I think to many of us, I know he's a hero of yours, a brilliant scientist. And as you, you were describing the Galileo affair in summary, he is sometimes just a stand-in for a conflict over religion and science. But what I've found interesting in, in your the talk that you're, you're going to present at Ocon in, what, two weeks, less than two weeks, uh, is that there seems to be a different narrative that's come out about Galileo. And I, I've heard snippets of it. I, I'm interested in, if you could tell us a bit of what is the view that people who study this area What's the sort of growing narrative that you've seen about Galileo? Um, is he admired as well as he should be? How do they, what do they think of this affair? What, what, what do they draw from it? The scholarly consensus among historians today is uh, that while Galileo was a great scientist and obviously made important discoveries, that this Galileo affair is complicated or complex. Those are the words they would tend to use. That is, they would say that there is sort of blame on both sides, that Galileo was not perfect, he was flawed, uh, and he bears some responsibility for what happened to him. And uh, they would also say that there's a lot more common ground between Galileo and the church, and that the church is not sort of as anti-science as they have in, well, earlier on had a reputation of being. So it's sort of trying to take away from the symbolism that the Galileo affair used to have, used to have and say, it's actually much more complicated. Okay, so I, I wanna come back to this idea of complexity because it, it, it sounds like there's a lot to say there, but just give us, for people who don't remember or didn't study this uh, episode, give us like a, a 30 second, what are some of the things Galileo discovered that put him at odds with the church? The discoveries that put him at odds with the church were related to the structure of the universe. So in the time of Galileo, the dominant view was the Ptolemaic view, which also was shared by Aristotle, that the earth is at the center of the universe, 
the sun is like the other planets and going around the earth. Uh, the fixed stars that we see in the sky, those are also going once every 24 hours around the earth. And Galileo in the 1610s started to firmly agree with Copernicus uh, that no, the earth is a planet going around the sun. That certainly appears to contradict many things in the Bible. And in this time, the church was kind of reasserting its authority against Martin Luther and the other Protestants and saying it is our job to interpret scripture and people should not be allowed to just reinterpret it for themselves and decide that it really means something besides what we say it means. And they took it to mean uh, in, in various places that uh, the earth is the center of the universe. So the, the Bible tells them the earth is the center of the universe. Galileo looking through a telescope comes out with a different conclusion and that sort of the, that's the crux of one of the, the points of crux. So t tell me a bit more about what is put under this heading of complexity and, and this two sides have, each side has a claim. Because I mean, I, I'm not a historian, but I've done a lot of reading in history. And my impression is it's, everything is complicated. Everything is complicated. That, that's not an answer to how, it seems like it's a dodge. It's not really a claim to, um, I, I'm just, I want to understand a bit more about what it is that they think this complexity tells you about the situation. Yeah, so let me just say my view is definitely that the basic root cause of what happened is simple. Uh, I think this was a conflict between a great scientist and a man of integrity and a church that wanted him to go by faith. And, and this would not have happened without that. So the root cause is simple. I think historians are sometimes bad at essentializing and getting at root causes. And so a lot of what they point out, the facts are true. And the facts, I think, correct some misunderstandings that historians used to have about the Galileo affair. Uh, it is true, for example, that Galileo believed, uh, as far as we can tell, that scripture is 100% true. So, you know, the, the way in which he's a man of science, there is something you could say is complex about that. It's also true that most of the cardinals Galileo was dealing with in the church, they looked through the telescope, they, they engaged with the science, uh, they accepted some of Galileo's discoveries, they disagreed with the interpretation uh, and the claim that it supports Copernicus. Uh, but it, you know, to those people out there who maybe think, ah, oh, the church wouldn't even look through Galileo's telescope. Okay, yeah, it's not that, it, it's not, if you call that simple, it's not that simple. Uh, but the, the, I think we still need to get and focus at root causes. And uh, there's, a, there's definitely a trend in the way history is done that fails to look at root causes. I want to hear a bit about your background in this and so what got you interested. So I know your background, you have a PhD in philosophy and you studied the development of science. So tell us a bit about your background and then how you, where was your first point of contact that made you think of Galileo as, okay, this is someone really interesting and I want to learn more about him. Yeah, so I was fortunate to go for my undergraduate degree to a small college, uh, St. John's College, uh, which you might know as the Great Books School. And I was able to read Galileo in the original, well, not the Italian, but was, you know, I wasn't going through textbooks. I actually read Galileo there. Uh, and I had one class. It was actually just one other student 
me and the professor meeting in the professor's office. And we read the whole dialogue in the two chief world systems, which is the book that all of this is about. And consider I was an undergraduate student with not a lot of background in science. And the book is gripping. Um, it, it just provides such a great clarity and you can follow the arguments step by step. Um, and I, I fell in love with Galileo just because of how clear, how engaging that work was and continued to work on him uh, during my PhD, uh, where I focused on history of philosophy and history of philosophy of science. So I, I'm, you've told us that it's important when looking at this to identify root causes and sort of essentialize from the complexity, which I think is a, a really formidable challenge. I'm curious, what are some of the things you found when you dug into some of this evidence? What are some of the surprising uh, things you learned uh, in the course of your research on this topic? One thing I've been looking at is the nature of the censorship that was going on, because I, I think we might imagine that censorship is just, you're told you can't publish something or your book is banned. Uh, but it, it's very interesting to track how censorship actually operated in a country at a time where it was a serious thing people had to deal with. Um, and uh, what you'll learn a little bit more about in my talk is how a lot of the censorship Galileo faced was not at the stage where he's told his book is banned or where it's put, put on the shelves, but where he's forced to have conversations with the Pope. And it's kind of a negotiation with the Pope. What can I say? What can I not say? Uh, it's where there are threats of people denouncing you to the Inquisition. And if someone denounces you, then there has to be a trial. And so you know, just for fear of someone getting up and denouncing you, you know, you're going to be very cautious about what you say. And that happens way before there's ever a book banning. And you know, this is in the nature of living your life and, and, and running and forcing people to run their minds by faith. And that's, that's the way, that's the nature of what was going on. It sounds like, I don't know if this is part of what you're going to be talking about, but from the, the bits of your presentation that I've seen in dry runs and things like that. And from what you're saying today, it sounds like there's definitely applications to the climate that we see ourselves in today, where the, there, there isn't in effect banning of books by the government, but there is a climate of, authoritarian pressure and, and uh, threats to, um, to ostracize people. And so it, it, this is, this may be the, the original case study that people can look at where you have a massively powerful institution, the Catholic church, and you have lone in an individual thinker who's trying to understand the world independently and facing that. So it, how much are you thinking uh, there are resonances here? Do you plan to talk about them or what, what's your view of that? Yeah, there are huge residences. Um, there are both institutional forces still, such as if you have a consensus view in science, you'll probably have a much easier time getting funding. Uh, and then outside of the institutions, I think, I think one obvious parallel to the Galileo affair is with uh, defenders of vaccine and certain views related to COVID. And just take this example, Anthony Fauci, and I don't mean to say he's of the same caliber as Galileo, but most people know him, so I can use him as an example. He received death threats. Just, you know, I think he was, you know, doing science in an honest way, and he's getting death threats. 
And I think there's a lot to learn for people in anything like that situation, whether they're scientists or whether they just have views that are not in the consensus, like many of us do in philosophy. And, and the, I think there's a lot to learn from the integrity Galileo had and standing firm. And, and I think ultimately Galileo won, that is his arguments won the day. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Well, I have a, this is a topic for another time. I have a very dark view of the church, but I want to throw this to you and just get your reaction to it. Many hundreds of years after Galileo died, the Catholic church issued, I believe they called it an apology, Galileo for the way he was handled and treated and threatened. What's your reaction to that? statement and that apology do you do you think it's sufficient do you do you regard that as a step in the right direction what's your thought on that no i don't think it's sufficient it's sort of saying galileo was right which you can't deny now obviously he was right but i think a, a sufficient apology would require the catholic church to say you should not go by faith because the church still to this day is going to say about many topics that you should not use reason um, when it conflicts with faith or that it's still, there's still a barrier between your mind and the world and, and the church still shuts down or thinking about so many issues. It's just, you know, they can't escape the truth on this particular issue, but there's so many other issues where people's minds are still being shut down. Well, Dan, looking forward to your talk. You're returning to Ocon more newer rather than a first time speaker. So looking uh, excited to hear your talk there. Thanks for joining us. Stick around. We might have some questions near the end. Let's turn to Nikos. Welcome, Nikos. Nice to see you, Lan. Hi, everyone. It's good to have you back. I want to talk to you about your your presentation at Ocon, which I believe is a follow-up to the talk you gave last year. So I was very, I was very impressed with your talk last year, which was a look at the way uh, the Soviet Union was handled and the way it was appeased by the West. And so now you're giving us a different perspective on this sort of intellectual cultural phenomenon called the left or socialism, but from the perspective of a role it had in the Middle East that isn't that well known. So tell us a bit about what what is the topic, why is it not that well known? What do you find interesting about it? So the topic is, there are two ways to see it. One way is you see the conflict in the Middle East. It has been going on for decades. The Arabs versus the Israelis, to put it simple. And this talk will offer you an extra insight. Because you've known about the Arab regimes like Nasser, for example. Then you've known about the Palestinian movement. Now you find that there was another player the chessboard. And this player was the communist countries, but also the new left in the West. And when this new player appeared in the scene, the whole dynamic of the conflict changed. That's the one thing which is important. The other thing which is important is that understanding how the left viewed the, the Middle East conflict, you understand a bit better what is, what is the essence of the left? What is the identity of the left? What does the left want? What do they go after? What is their character? So this talk will be of interest, both to people who are interested in the Middle East, but even if you don't know anything about the Middle East, even if at the moment you cannot even point to me where 
Israel is on the map. There are things that will be of benefit to you from the talk because, again, it will be on the left. And incidentally, in the beginning, there's going to be some context setting. So even someone who is not an expert on the Middle East conflict will be able to follow. Yeah, I was going to say it's already an intimidating topic for a lot of people. I, I've given presentations on the topic and it, it's often people are, they don't really know where to begin. Uh, so I want to ask you a bit, just a, one detail questions and then one macro question. So the detailed question is, you mentioned the new left. What, what in your mind is the new left? How do you think of that? What, it's, is, what is its relation to the left that we're familiar with in North America over the 20th century? How does it relate to the communist bloc? Well, just give us an orientation to those elements of the left. Yes. So when I talk about the communist bloc, I talk about Soviet Union and its allies. This means countries that were ruled by a communist party and were ruled under this particular system, including some countries that at some point were not anymore allies of the Soviet Union, like, for example, China. When I talk about the new left, I mean the left as it is prevalent in the West since, and as it has been since the 60s. The social movements, what we call the new left is, for example, the left that talks about social justice, the left that talks about the environment, the left that, the left that talks about the identity politics, about post-colonialism. So a left that is not anymore about we need to take power, the revolutionary party needs to take power, through a revolution, and then we have the dictatorship of the proletariat, because some people might say, this thing is of the past. These, these guys are not here anymore. But my claim will be that something that you will notice is that the new left, supposedly different from the old uh, authoritarian Stalinist left, you will notice that in many things, they're quite similar with the old left in how they view the world and what is their understanding of right and wrong, good and bad. So what I'm getting from your summary is that when people look at the Middle East today or in the last 50 years, they know Israel has confronted Arab dictatorships or monarchies and now Islamists in the last 30 years and Iran is a big player. But you're, what you're telling us is that to understand this conflict, we need to see the role of the left in general and, and that it's, it's a piece of this whole story that people haven't appreciated and that also reflects on the left. So I, I want to just turn to that and ask you a bit about your interest in this. So you were of the left for, for many years. Tell us a bit about what it was like from the inside and what sort of insights you have on that. So my experience with the topic was as an activist when the Palestinian kefiya, the Palestinian uh, scarf, being very, very invested in this topic, being 100% sure that the moral compass of this topic is crystal clear, Palestinians are weak, Israel is strong, therefore I am with the Palestinians. And now in retrospect, when I see back, when I introspect back to myself, I'm thinking, was the well-being of the Palestinians really what I had in mind? Like, what was my main motivation? Bringing, making sure I try to contribute to bringing justice to people who have faced injustice. This is how I view the Palestinians. Or was it something else? Because looking back, I realized that no idea about the conflict. If you ask me, Nikos, I see you go and protest in the Israeli embassy. Do you know what happened in 1948, in 1967, and in 1973? After my talk, you will know why these dates are important. But back then, I would say, no, I have no idea. 
So that's what I'm trying to understand without reaching the level of, you know, I'm, I'm psychologizing. I'm not psychologizing. I'm trying to understand myself. What was my motivation when I was so vocal about my moral evaluation of the conflict? And then I see what the left has done, what, how the left has acted. And I'm also trying to draw the conclusion, what is the left trying to achieve? Is it indeed trying to wrong some injustice? Does it want that the Palestinians are going to have a better future, a most prosperous, a happier future? And this is the hypothesis that I put on the test, and you will see the answer on Monday, the 3rd of July, in my talk. So, Nikos, I, I want to hear a bit about the... So you, part of your background is you, you've studied law, you've studied social uh, movements, and your, your, your doctorate is in... Uh, sort of political sociology. So you, you have an interest in political movements in general. I've always been interested in your perspective on this. How much do you plan to talk about in your presentation? Maybe if not, then you can ask people, people can ask questions. But there seems to be a nexus still between the whatever we think of as the left today, the, the sort of critical justice, uh, social justice and critical theory type movements, which you've talked about in other contexts, and the perspective on Israel as a colonial power, and that there's sort of it's a, it's a retelling of the story, but now through a new kind of prism. How much of that do you do you think is ongoing? How much do you plan to talk about? It is on. Not only it's ongoing. It's ongoing would be an understatement. Part of being anti-Israel, or if you want to put it, let's be more light and soft day. Part of being pro-Palestinian goes hand in hand with the identity of being on the left. That's one thing which is for sure. Now, you s it's very popular today saying that the problem with the developing countries or with poorer countries or with the Arab world is that there has been the presence of colonial forces. So because the Israelis, because, I don't know, ethnically they're viewed as white, whatever that means, this is another reason why this conflict is, is viewed as the bad colonialists, the outpost of the West, versus people who were living peaceful lives, and then suddenly the Western uh, colonialist comes, and then the whole area is in turmoil. Of course, this is a story which has very, very little to do with the truth. But this is how the left views the story. And this is one of the reasons why I think that moral compass in this conflict is a moral compass which is broken. And the victims of this moral compass is not only the Israelis who are suffering from the violence and they've been suffering for decades, but also the Palestinians. So I will challenge that if you are pro-Palestinian, you have to support the line of the left on how they view the conflict. I want to ask you one last question before we, I want to bring on Agustina and talk to her in a minute, but one thing that I think a lot of people find puzzling and I, I find it really interesting is that for many voices in the self-identifying left, social justice movement, what we often hear is about the rights of women and we hear about the rights of minorities, we, we hear about gay rights and, and, and leaving aside the, the merits or demerits of those claims, those are things that are associated with their agenda and so forth. And yet at the same time, as you've been making the case here, and I'm, I'm sure you'll make the, the, the fuller case in your talk, being pro-Palestinian is, is inseparable from the same kind of cluster of views and issues. 
And yet there's a contradiction because in many of these countries that are hostile to Israel, even among the Palestinian society, these aren't the values that the Palestinians stand up for. It's not, it's not like they're about feminism or about protection of minorities and religious minorities or gays and so forth. In fact, it's the opposite. It's like you cannot find a more patriarchal society than under Islam or under sort of Arab nationalism. What do you think of that tension, or if not contradiction? It's a contradiction that has been going on for decades. What are the professed values of the left? For example, democracy. And yet they do not support the only democracy in the area. Another value they have is the new left, diversity, which means right for the minorities, the minorities to be allowed to express themselves. Where do you find this? In Israel or in the Arab countries? So there's a big contradiction there. But it's a contradiction that the left hasn't got the tool to resolve. So even if someone is a well-meaning leftist, the tool to resolve would be to judge. To judge and say, this culture over there is better than this culture over there. But intellectually, a leftist these days is disarmed from making this judgment because we've been told that you cannot judge that particular culture because then you are Eurocentric, uh, then uh, this is something which is not allowed. So not only there is this contradiction, but this contradiction is impossible to be resolved, which is one of the reasons, I'll repeat it again, that if someone cares about justice in the area and if someone cares about the suffering of the Palestinians, the first thing to do will be to leave aside the narrative and the intellectual tools of the left because they cannot operate in bringing justice in any way. Ligos, I'm excited to hear your talk. Uh, I'm always interested in your presentation. So thanks for joining us. Just stick around, we might do some questions near the end. And let's, uh, sure. let's turn to Agustina. Welcome, Agustina. Thank you, Alain. Very happy to be here. Great, thanks for joining us today. So I want to hear a bit about your presentation coming up at Ocon. So this is your first time speaking. It's exciting for me. I've seen you develop with us for a number of years. Now, you're going to be talking about the immigration issue in the U.S. And what I found interesting when I heard your your plan and, and some of your um, when we were discussing it in other settings is that you know the first thing that comes to mind when people talk about immigration is at various times there's a crisis on the border now months ago a year ago there are alarming images of people crossing rivers to get into the United States people on rafts trying to get to Florida people in cages. And so, and that's where a lot of the energy is. That's not what you're talking about, but what you are saying, I found even more provocative than that kind of issue. So, so what is the aspect of the immigration issue that you're going to focus on? What do you want to share with us about that? So for sure, all the issues at the border and uh, the crossings, where there is in, in, in Texas, in Florida, that is obviously a big problem, but that is the issue with illegal immigration, right? But what it's what most people are not very aware of is, is that there is a problem with our legal immigration system. We have a system that actually pushes people out that does not welcome immigrants. And in fact, you know, you hear all these politicians, especially now that they're campaigning, and when they talk about immigration, they say, well, you know, we like immigration, but you know, people have to just get in line and follow the law. Well, the problem is that this line that these the people want immigrants to get in does not exist. Or if it exists for a very limited number of immigrants, actually, it's really hard to get in that line. 
And when some when immigrants actually manage to do that, they are usually pushed out. So it's really, really hard to immigrate to the United States. And there are profound injustices that go on with this system that is part of what I'm going to be addressing in my talk. What I'm hearing is that this is this is not a talk about the nitty gritty of the policies in place or the political system, but it, more of a moral perspective on the institution of legal immigration. Is that an accurate takeaway? That is correct. There are many issues, practical and moral, with the immigration system, and I'm going to address all these these profound injustices that go on in the system. And I'm going to explain in my talk what are the fundamental things that not only make the system overly complicated and hard for immigrants to 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 abide by, but also why it is profoundly immoral immoral as well. So I wanted hear a bit more about this idea, the claim you're making that the, this line that people talk about, you have to get in line and, and work through the system and so forth. I want to hear more about that. And the aspect that I, I wanted to open that with is, I, I mean, I, I'm an immigrant, you're an immigrant, so we have sort of a firsthand view of what it looks like. But for many people who are born in the US, they never have to go through this system. And so there's no interest, no reason to be interested in it. And maybe just give us like a top level summary. Like if, if somebody is coming, say, from France and they are, you know, they want to come and work here. And what, what are one or two categories that they, what, what are the options for them to go through and join the line to become an American? What, what would it look like? Is it, um, what are the entry points? How many are there? Well, there aren't many entry points. There's only a limited number of visa categories that a person can apply to. And it's pretty hard to fit into these, these visa categories. So for someone from, from, like you said, from France that wants to uh, come to work here, there's two things that you have to know. First of all, the fact that someone is granted a visa, it's usually a temporary visa, meaning that if someone wants to come to work here, it's usually going to be for a limited amount of time, say three years, five years, and then they have to renew their visa to keep staying in the United States. So being granted a visa is not the same as being granted permanent residency, which is what people uh, commonly refer to as a green card. Obtaining a green card is extremely difficult and convoluted, and that's part of what I'm going to talk about in my talk. Uh, but so if someone from France wants to come here, they have to find, they would usually apply for an H-1B visa, which is for uh, skilled workers, right? Because we don't really have a visa for whether like unskilled workers, someone that doesn't have a, a degree in a, in a particular field. And so this person would have to find an employer in the United States that wants to hire them. And this employer would have to show that they have made all the possible efforts to hire someone that uh, from a, to hire an American, and they have to justify the need to go ahead and, try and, and hire someone from abroad. And they have to apply for this process that, co that costs thousands of dollars, it just fees and add to that, uh, an, an immigration lawyer that you're, you're going to need because it's really difficult to understand this process without an expert. And they're going to have to enter to submit all this paperwork, submit justifications as to why this particular person, probably a very talented person that this United States company wants to hire, but this person is from France. So 
they have to submit all this paperwork, justify every, like the reason why they want this person. This person has to be qualified for the job and they have to have certain degrees. They have to enter a lottery. And this lottery has a cap. It's usually about 60,000 a year. And if this person- One second. So what you're saying is they, they have to have a certain level of skills. They have to have the employer prove that this is the person they want. And then it's on top of that, on top of that, it's a lottery. So it's not just, you have to de demonstrate this person's skill. This person's the right fit. This person has all, like met every possible requirement, but then it's just a, a random kind of lottery. Yeah. So then what happens is there's this lottery because there's just this cap, right? It's not that every single person that wants to come work in America can do it. There is this, this, this cap that is assigned by a lottery system. So if you didn't get, if you weren't lucky enough, literally lucky enough to get uh, a spot in this lottery, then you have to wait until next year. And if you don't get it, you have to wait until next year and so forth and so on. So it's really hard to come here to work. And uh, there are other numbers of visas that someone from France, like a worker from France could apply to, but they're also even harder to obtain. Like this, uh, what they're called the, but commonly called the Einstein visas or the talent visas, those are really, really hard to get. So really the only option that someone has is applying for an H-1B and that is extremely convoluted and hard to do. So if you're a world-class soccer player from France, that's maybe that's a kind of Einstein visa or if you're like a super duper inventor and you have a hundred patents to your name, that might be a kind of what you, what is described as an Einstein visa. Is that sort of the category we're talking about or just some guy who's particularly smart? Well, the, the talent visas vary. Some uh, individuals are required to have extraordinary abilities. Some others are required to be internationally recognized. It varies. There are two types of visas that apply in this case. But I'll give you, for instance, if you're Lionel Messi, right, the, the soccer player, he is coming to the United States to, uh, to play in Miami. And his visa was granted really fast because he's, well, he's the best soccer player in the world. And we want him here, right? But if you are short of being Messi or, you know, one of these super recognized stars, it's extremely hard to immigrate to the United States. Well, it gives the lie to the idea that there's a line because it, for certain people like him, there is no line. He just shows up and he's, 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 uh, he's welcomed with open arms. I, I'm interested a bit in what motivated you to, to explore this issue and make it a research agenda. I know you're also studying the topic uh, um, for enrichment. What got you interested in this? Well, I'm, like you said earlier, Lan, I'm an immigrant myself, and uh, I immigrated to the United States about five, five and a half years ago. And my own immigration story was very hard, very complicated, very expensive, and extremely emotionally taxing. And many injustices were committed, that were done to me while uh, going through this process of trying to immigrate to the United States. So I have that personal experience and that personal background, but also as I was uh, going through this process, I started, you know, researching and looking, okay, is this just my case that is so problematic and so unjust? Is it, is it the exception or is this happening to someone else? And it turns out that this is the norm. So all these injustices that I'm going, that I have, that I'm still going through, but I went through, which I'll explore uh, further in my talk, 
all these injustices are what is the norm is not the exception. So our system by design is try is committing all these injustices on uh, against immigrants or wannabe immigrants. And the system is actually what I found is it's actually designed to push people away to get them if they they manage to get in that line, which I managed to do is designed to push them away. And that almost happened to me. I was this close to being pushed away. I thankfully was able to persist, but a lot of immigrants are not able to do that. So that is one of the reasons why I got interested in this. And because I care about freedom and I care about justice, uh, I decided to uh, look more into this. And I found that there's a lot going on here that is unjust, that is immoral, and we could do much better. And the, our immigration system needs to be reformed to be able to live up to what the United States actually is. Um, I'm excited to hear your talk at Ocon in less than two weeks. Thanks for sharing that with us, Agustina. Stick around. I think we have a couple of questions and maybe we'll bring in everybody else if we can and just see how many questions there are that we can uh, address. Thanks again for the super chat support we got. We appreciate that. So let me get one question in here for Sam. There you are, Sam. Hi, Sam. So the one question we got is about learning uh, to read English. Uh, so does learning to read English using phonics help when learning another language? I don't know. Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I imagine, I mean, I haven't looked at any uh, studies or, or cases on this, but just based on my own experience learning other languages, I think it probably does help to um, when, it, when it's other languages that work on a phonetic or alphabetic principle. So for example, uh, learning a language like Spanish or French um, that also operates in, with letters that correspond to sounds, I think, it, I think it does help because you already have the practice from when you were a child of sounding out words, right? Okay, th this letter makes this sound, this one makes this sound, and putting them together um, and so when you're learning a different language, you have to learn a different set of rules, right? Like, so letters in Spanish are not pronounced the same as they are in English. You have to learn that set of rules. But if you already are accustomed to sounding out words, it probably does make it easier. Uh, on the other hand, I will say, I don't, I think it's a different case if you're talking about languages that don't work with an alphabet like English. And I don't really know much about how you learn uh, to read like Mandarin or languages like that. All right. Uh, this one's for you, Agustin. Um, are the immigration systems of other countries significantly different from the U.S. system? I don't know how much you've explored that. Do you have a perspective to share? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the immigration system in other countries is generally much more uh, open to immigrants than in the United States. Canada itself grants, uh, it's much easier to obtain permanent residency in Canada than it is to obtain permanent residency in the United States. And that is relevant and important because when you are on a visa in the United States, you don't really have any stability. You cannot plan your life and your future because you don't know if when your visa expires, you're going to be able to renew it, you're going to be approved to renew it, and you're going to be kicked out. So that is one relevant point. But also in other countries, uh, like my own country where I come from, Argentina, uh, the there is an immigration system, but it's much more, uh, it is not enforced in a way that the, the United States is, uh, uh, system is enforced. So you can go 
and work there and 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 produce and make money you have to pay taxes and all that but as long as you're producing you're not uh you're not doing you're not a criminal you're going to be fine and that is true of many other countries but unfortunately not in the united states uh, and my impression is that the system in the u.s has gone through a lot of different changes at different times it was more restrictive less restrictive at different, different points in history so, I mean, yeah. for people watching today, uh, if you have more questions, great. Come to the talks. If you're coming in person, we'd love to see you uh, at Ocon in uh, just under two weeks. And I encourage you all to attend the talks. Our, our crew here by Sam, Nico, Stan, and Agustina welcome you all to those presentations. And a reminder, if you're not able to join us in Miami, as I know many people are not, for timing and other reasons, you can still sign up to get a virtual pass. Those are still available online and that gives you access in real time to the presentations. And then if you can't make it in real time, you can watch them on demand uh, for I think uh, more than a month after the event. So you have a lot of time to catch up if you aren't able to do it in person. Let me thank you all for joining today and giving us a preview of your presentations. I'm, I'm As I said, I'm looking forward to hearing them. And Thank you all for joining us today for this podcast and fun sharing with you what is up and in store for the Ocon event. So this is like the pre-game show. I forget who came up with that title, but I really like it. Uh, preview and uh, introduction to some of our new speakers. Thank you all and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.